Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode is the fifth recap in Chapter 4 of Peace. We're covering pages 243 to 252 in the Orb 2012 edition this time. There are 90% fewer ghost stories in this section we're about to cover today. I can't say 100% because that's not true, but we are going to spend some time finally at Lewis Gold's bookstore. Right. At last, we are actually going to get to Gold's bookshop in order to pick up Kate Boyne's diary. And I do feel like this has been a huge tease. Like I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for us to get to this bookshop for like 40 pages now. And finally, here we are. And we do begin with another description of the shop, though this time much more focused on its contents than on its atmosphere. The windows display new books that no one but their publishers had ever heard of. Uh, these are books about sailing and hunting and uh, collecting Victorian ladies' accessories. But inside, the new books give way to old, and the shop is lined with shelves stretching from floor to ceiling, a very high ceiling such that the topmost books require a ladder. Now, those aren't the only shelves, of course, but the interior shelves are shorter, and so Gold has piled books on top of them as well. And Wolf gives us a great description of these books. I'm just going to read this because it's so awesome. All the outpourings of the English-speaking presses, accumulated and preserved in a pickle of democracy, so that classics stood on the same shelf with books that, though they deserve to be remembered, were not, and these with books justly forgotten, and others that ought never to have seen the light of print. Now, Weir picks up a book at random, and it turns out to be a memoir by a missionary. Mr. Gold is here now, and he explains a little bit about this random book. It's by a dude named Murchison. Uh, They're a local farm family, not dissimilar to the Lorne family we've spent so much time with. And this book was published in 1888. It was published by the Christian sect to which Murchison belonged. And there were only 500 copies printed, so it's incredibly rare. Now, Gold knows all of this only because it says so in the book. The title page includes the publishing details, and there's even a little blank space where the number of this book could be written, and it is number 177. The publisher was called Letter of Paul Press, and it was based in Peoria, Illinois, uh, a place that mattered, of course, both to Wolf and his wife, Rosemary. And we're going to get Gold and Boyne's diary in a moment, but I just wanted to pause and offer up really a, a kind of elegy for local used bookshops. This store just seems awesome. Uh, Now, of course, we're going to learn a very interesting secret about it later this chapter, but even just right now, this store seems so awesome. It seems fantastical, really, and I miss these places. I miss them so much. Yeah, they they seem to be harder and harder to find. I haven't found a single one so far in, you know, a reasonable distance from where I live in Illinois. And boy, is that a little heartbreaking. I know there's uh, something like this about three hours away from where I live, and I've thought about taking a trip there, but um, it doesn't seem like I'm going to have the time to do it for a little while. I don't know. Maybe I'll just drive into Chicago and find some find some bookstores. That's a little closer, at least. But it is absolutely, I don't know, heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to me that I can't just, uh, I don't know, drive two towns over and find an old barn. Someone's filled with books and 
pay 50 cents for a for a lost treasure. We talked about, you know, the last time this bookstore was described how the chalice of Antioch is used to invoke this sense that you could find that holy grail book in in one of these bookstores and yeah, I miss them as much as you do, I guess. It's really what I'm saying. Oh, and that's that's literally the plot of the Neil Gaiman story Chivalry, which of course Brent and I have actually oh, I don't know, in the last few months actually published over on Hanging Out with the Dream King, but also <laughs> written in the 1990s, right? So it's not a story that Gaiman would write today at least not if he was going to set it in the the present, that's for sure. But yeah, I mean, I lament to hear you even describe that, Brandon. Of course, I think listeners who pay attention to our silly biographical details that we give out from time to time will realize that you are now living where I grew up and vice versa, uh, and no longer living in the same place. But just if it were 25 years ago, I mean, I could tell you a dozen stores that are exactly like Mr. Gold's shop within striking distance of where you are, shops that Brent and I used to go to and find those those and so on, many of which are still, you know, right next to me here in the the, the basement where I'm recording this episode. And boy, just uh, really, really miss these places. So I think anytime I get a, uh, we get a description of a bookstore in a in something we're reading, I feel like I've got to pause and offer up a lamentation for this. Um, even as I myself have been part of the problem, first by shopping at big box bookstores, then by working at one, and then by switching to the internet to to find books because, of course, you know, I don't want to read a book that was published last month. I want to read some weird book that no one's ever heard of from 70 years ago. So I'm the problem. <laughs> yeah, I guess we're all the problem. It's a it's a trend. It, it works in a in a mass, not not as the individual. Let's uh, let's shift back to the text here as things are getting uncomfortable for us. <laughs> and talk about the uh, the Murchisons. Uh, you said that they are not dissimilar to the Lorne's and, and that's true. Because M. Lawrence made a name as Murchison, and Tartary is a term that is used to describe a, a rather large swath of China, or maybe Asia, I should say, and, and that territory historically included the Chinese-India border. So almost certainly one episode in this book by the, the missionary Murchison, a name that also means like sea warrior. I don't think that matters. It's a Scottish name, but um, certainly almost one episode in this book would describe the the provenance of the Chinese egg here. And, and you know, we're going to add here that Blaine might not have been as far off as we think then in thinking of the egg as being Indian. So I don't know. That's that's something to keep in mind. Um, that is to say, if this book is is as true an artifact as. Uh, as gold as it seems to be selling it as. But I can also say that we haven't heard from Margaret Lauren in a while here. And I just realized in, in reading this section that I that I miss her. Uh, but anyway, we're just in super weird territory here. Yeah, and we're not done with Margaret Lauren in this book, for sure. There will there will be more more time for us to, to revisit and think about Margaret Lauren. But yeah, let's carry on here. Now, this section is going to end with Boyne's diary, but we do also get some some scattered bit of description of Mr. Gold. And so I think let's Let's start with that. He's short, but he carries himself like a drill sergeant. He wears rimless glasses, and when he takes them off, he looks like an elderly mole. And also, his accent waxes and wanes, but he does at least sometimes pronounce W's like V's, uh, as is done in German, for example. Gold is very interested in books as material objects, uh, not just their content, but but as the object itself. Now, we had this with Stuart Blaine as well, and it does seem like something that Wolf also is interested in. And I mean Wolf, not Weir, though Weir too, I suppose. 
And along these lines, we can even think back to several other stories that feature books in which we get detailed descriptions of them as objects. Uh, VRT's Diary, I think, is a great example. But there are actually loads of places where we get this sort of thing in Wolf's fiction, even just in the 60s and 70s, as we've read so far. And I really love these details. I am not someone who especially notices books as objects, except maybe to complain about, you know, like the paper quality, you know, that sort of thing. But I do really appreciate descriptions of bookmaking as an art form. And so I'm really glad to have that here. I'm glad that Wolf has his engineering brain on often when he's thinking about books. And we do get that here with Kate Boyne's diary. Uh, The cover is sheepskin that once had a gold-colored lettering on it that said, The Catholic Girl's Seven-Year Daybook. Now, the idea here is that this was a type of diary, uh, an appointment book, I mean. Uh, It was used for young Catholic girls, and it also then had information about saints' days and other holy days. And this was given to Kate when she attended a school in Boston. Uh, It was a prize, and this is something that Kate wrote about in, in, in the book here. Now, because Kate did not use the book as intended, she really wrote in it as a type of journal, paying absolutely no attention to the printed dates on the pages. But because Kate didn't use the book as intended, Gold knows all of this. But that's really all that he's read. He has not read the whole thing all the way through. What he's done is flip through it enough to know that there are sometimes long gaps of time between entries and that it stops in 1864. But, you know, he's also hardly read every book in his shop. And in this case, although he doesn't say so, he really just had to inspect it enough to know what it was and what he should charge for it. And that's it about the book. Almost, anyway. Now, Gold recites a rhyme about Little Orphan Annie that we should probably talk about. But I'm going to leave that to you, Brandon, and really just quickly get us to the section break here. Weir and Lois spend the day and evening together, but Weir does not narrate any of that to us, and instead, he just tells us that a week went by without hearing from Lois. Then she calls him up, and she's very tired from working extra shifts, but she invites him over for dinner. That invitation for dinner, that's an afterthought. It's actually not really why she's calling. Why she's calling is that she wants to know about the area west of town and south of the river. Now, This, of course, is where Weir had his adventure in the cave with Professor Peacock and his Aunt Olivia, uh, one of many, but the only one that we've got details about. At any rate, Lois wants to know how long the Phillips farmhouse has been there, and she's disappointed when Weir says that it's only been there about 30 years, that before then, this used to just be pasture land for cattle, and in fact, he remembers when that land was being plowed for the first time because he looked for arrowheads in the newly turned up dirt. Lois wonders if there hadn't been a previous house on that land, uh, a previous house with a cellar hole or an old chimney. Now, she doesn't say why, but uh, we'll find out a little later in this episode. Yeah, yeah, we certainly will. Uh, There's a lot going on in this section. Uh, First, apart from introducing us to a name, Phillips, I think for the first time, uh, Weir also mentions on this call, you know, as Lois is interrogating him about the history of the land, uh, Weir mentions a guy named uh, Ben Porter. And we've met a Porter boy in passing earlier in chapter two. Dick Porter, in fact, is the one who asked Eleanor Bull to the Methodist picnic where she gets, you know, the dirt on the Chinese egg. And it seems likely to me that Dick Porter is Ben Porter's cousin. This is going to matter later on in this episode. 
Before I talk about this little orphan Annie reference, though, uh, doesn't it seem odd to you, Glenn, that Lewis Gold has like two old rare books that are directly about local families? I think that when we get to the end of this chapter, we're going to have to talk about what it means for Lewis Gold to have these books in, in such a small town as Cashinsville. Right. I think there are a number of layers in which we might wonder about the odds of of having these books, <laughs> perhaps the veracity of them as well. There, there are at least two layers where we're going to need to think about that. One of them is going to become obvious, though, as we get later into this chapter. Yeah, and I think one is one is far more subtle. But let's talk about this bit of verse recited by Gold. It comes from a poem called Little Orphant Annie. And this was a poem written by James Whitcomb Riley. The poem was originally published under the name The Elf Child in 1885. And Riley was known as the Hoosier poet uh, because he was pretty famous in Indiana and beyond. I mean, (laughs) you know, Indiana really claimed him during the halcyon days of him being published. This poem is about an orphan who is a living servant for a family. And the poem basically takes the tone of this orphan girl uh, threatening the misbehaved children in her charge with tales of boogeymen and goblins. Now, I would read it here in its entirety, but the poem is in dialect, and I fear I would really just make a a hash of it. So I'm not going to do that. You can find it online with these if you want to look it up. But I think what we're really supposed to get here is that Gold is insinuating that old Kate Boyne is the inspiration for Riley's poem. And indeed, Riley's poem was inspired by a real girl named Mary Alice Smith, who worked for his family when he was younger. But it wasn't Kate Boyne. As I said, it's Mary Alice Smith. And Riley went on to write a short story about Little Orphan Annie called Where is Mary Alice Smith? Uh, that includes you know, a gruesome story about a uh, beheading that I guess Mary witnessed and uh, her good friend being killed in, in the Civil War. Uh, the story is also widely available if you'd like to know more about that. Yes. And also Little Orphan Annie here, the title is the inspiration for the comic strip and the musical and and, and all that stuff. Uh, but that's not what Wolf or, or Weir has in mind here. And those Little Orphan Annie comics are presumably something that Wolf would have known from his own childhood. These were widely available in the 1930s. And in fact, there were even uh, short films. Uh, you know, this is all predates the musical, of course, but there were short films. And so uh, this is a real throwback to Wolf's own childhood here. And I think even really at the time that this conversation is happening, or, you know, presuming that this is the the mid-1950s, I'd, I don't know that this would have been really a big part of pop culture at this point, that it, it was kind of in the middle of two different periods of its of its heyday, right? The one with these earlier comic strips, and then uh, one from, uh, you know, a little bit later when we get the musical and then the the film. Yeah, as I've said, I mean, the real the real point here is that gold is really selling up the historical nature, the dubious historical nature of this, this claim that at least in this universe that we're inhabiting, nobody knows that little orphan Annie was based on a, on a real person that is a big part of Riley's success as as a writer. So anybody could check and say that this person isn't Kate Boyne, it's Mary Alice Smith. But Gold is kind of banking on people not having Google, I guess. Right. And and I guess one of the things that this is showing is Gold's 
own knowledge. Gold doesn't have Google either, right? So, you know, uh, his knowledge is is quite impressive. And we're going to see more and more of that as we spend time with him in the latter part of this chapter. And so this is just a little bit of a, of a hint there, right? That Gold has this impressive knowledge. And then the question is, what is he doing with that knowledge? All right. So the next section here that we're going to talk about is Weir and Lois's date at Lois's apartment. Now, let's start with what Lois says about looking for an old farmhouse west of town and south of the river. She says that this is part of the genealogical work that she has been doing for the library, uh, that she's looking for a private cemetery that would have been on a farm there because she wants the information on any headstones that might be left. Now, that is going to turn out to be a lie. We're going to see that in a few minutes. But that is all we get for this section because Weir mostly writes about his sexual desire for Lois. They have not had sex together at this point, though they do make out here on this date, and Weir has seen Lois in some state of undress. But then when he's home afterwards after this date, Weir imagines having sex with Lois, and he settles on a plan to take her out to the area that she's interested in and to have a picnic that is going to include some sex. And We'll see if any of that actually matters on its own, but I really only even include that in the recap here because this idea really results from Weir thinking about how Olivia and Professor Peacock used to go on adventures in this area as well, and he is certain that on trips when he was not present, they also used to have picnic sex. And I bring this up, really, because we are not quite done with Olivia's story yet. Though she's not the focus of this section or of this chapter, we are still continuing to learn more and more about her and are going to have to think about all of that. Yeah, the old sex on a picnic routine. It's a real it's a real classic. I think what's most striking to me about uh, this section, about Weir, is, is Weir laying in bed after putting Lois to bed when she passes out drunk on him after dinner and, you know, threatens him with, uh, with intimacy, basically, is that Weir admits that he'd rather fantasize about Lois than actually have sex with her. He says that when he was in Lois's apartment, he felt little for her. But then when he got home, all he can think about is having sex with her. I think that means that he and she are not going to have a really successful romantic relationship. But that actually might not be the most striking thing to me, though, because after all, you're right, Glenn, to point out how Weir's sexual desire for Lois in this moment is once again entangled in his imagining his Aunt Olivia having sex, in this case with Professor Peacock uh, on picnics. And I know this came up in the last episode, which, you know, maybe seems like a long time ago. But if you're reading through the novel, it's only been a few pages since Weir had to stop writing because he got really maybe either, you know, disturbed or distracted by thinking about attending to Aunt Olivia in the bath. So I don't know. There's a lot going on here that we're going to have to discuss in in the wrap ups for this chapter. And Weir has already a long time ago, in fact, described his Aunt Olivia as the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. And so, yeah, I mean, I think what you're getting at here, Brandon, is that Weir might have some unresolved sexual feelings, maybe not toward, but around his Aunt Olivia, that he's he's not ever addressed, perhaps in a, in a healthy way. And 
that can't be accidental, right? Wolf is not putting these details in here, hoping we won't think about them, hoping we won't talk about them on the podcast. So we are going to have to take stock of those <laughs> at some point. This is going to be a real question for us at the end of the book. I think there are some more savory explanations uh, for what's going on here. Maybe that's a poor choice of words than than not. Um, though everything here is, is fairly unsavory, I, I think there are ways of approaching the text here that are both kind of reading backwards makes sense, but also things that are brought up later in this chapter that might help us see a level at which Wolf is, is getting at this sort of um, Oedipal attraction to to his aunt. And I think that Oedipal is probably the right way to describe that, right? I don't think we need to be thinking about Lannisters. Okay. Well, at this point, we get two short interludes here before we're going to get back to Lois. Now, the first is a memory of Margaret Lorne, uh, presumably before she and Weir entered adolescence. And Margaret explains that they have a ghost. One of their doorsteps used to be a grave marker, and so their house used to be haunted by the Bell Witch. But when they moved in and discovered the haunting, her father, who we should remember is a minister, her father had the local wise woman, who is half Indian, uh, he had her come and de-haunt the place. But Margaret has seen the ghost lying under this stone, though Weir, of course, does not believe her. And... This then leads right into the next interlude. We're back in Weir's office when he's the president of Julia Smart's company, and he's meeting with Bill Batten, the advertising man. Now, it's the same day as the interruption about the hairy man wanting to see him. And in fact, it seems that Weir has arranged to have dinner with the hairy man tonight, which is really no trouble because he'd actually already intended to have dinner with Bill Batten. But Bill is going to fly back to New York. And so he's got kind of a, a hole in his schedule here. But that is not what really matters here. We enter this scene in media rest with Bill asking, what was all that about? And we don't know what the nature of the interruption was, but Weir explains that Mrs. Porter wants to plant a tree on his grave when he dies because that is her hobby. Uh, she plants trees of endangered American species on the graves of her friends. This doesn't really seem like something that ought to interrupt their meeting, I'll say, right? But uh, it, in fact, doesn't even really seem like something that Weir should care about at all. But Weir further explains that Mrs. Porter was a friend of his aunt's when he was a child. Uh, she was a beautiful woman then, a blonde. And perhaps that tells us something about whether or not we have met this person before, because I don't think that we have encountered this character, uh, Mrs. Porter, before in this book. Yeah, before we get to that, which I hinted at earlier in the episode, let's talk about this invocation of the Bell Witch once again. I, I brought this up uh, earlier in the chapter as a reference to the old Kate this is Kate Boyne, who is now accumulating a number of iconic American uh, folkloric and, and literary identities. I mentioned earlier when we talked about the Bell Witch that she's a Tennessee legend, while Little Orphan Annie comes from a famous Indianian writer, I guess. I, I don't know what you say there. Um, Hoosier. We I, think, also, I think you just say Hoosier. Yes, Hoosier. You just say Hoosier. That's right. Uh, we also learned that you know Margaret Lawrence haunt or ghost is kept down by a gravestone on top of her. Uh, maybe the same could be said of a tree keeping a ghost down in, in American superstition and folklore. So anyway, there's, there's a lot going on here. And Kate Boyne seems to be really, I don't know, a, a key character here in ways that are, are really hard to nail down. But speaking of trees here, who is this Mrs. Porter that's planting trees on people's graves? Well, we have two clues here. The first is, as I mentioned earlier, 
the Methodist picnic that was attended by Dick Porter and Eleanor Bold. The second is the opening line of the novel piece about the elm tree planted by Eleanor Bold, the judge's daughter, having fallen over. So in my reading here, uh, Eleanor Bold is Mrs. Porter, and that elm tree was planted on someone's grave. Man, picnics. This uh, this chapter is an advertisement for picnics and romance, I think. <laughs> we'll go with our wives. Uh, I think that that's what we'll do, not together. <laughs> but yeah, this is Eleanor Bold, of course, becomes Mrs. Porter here. And, you know, we knew that all sorts of things were going on with this tree. We'd, we'd, we'd wondered about it. You know, why does the book open with this? The, the tree, the falling of the tree is really an inciting incident. And now we've got some detail here about... Eleanor Bold and trees and planting them on graves. So yeah, that's something we're definitely going to have to think about in the future. I, I, yeah. I, I also love the way this section opens, which which you brought up, which is, what was all that about? Which is my question after reading this bit about Mar- Margaret Lorne <laughs> and the Bell Witch. So yeah, Wolf knows the games he's playing here completely. Yeah. We're going to have a very, very, very busy, at least one wrap-up episode for this chapter. And I mean, I think we're, we would be crazy to think that we're only going to do it in, in one episode, but we'll see how that shakes out. But we are actually here at the, the last section that we're going to cover in this recap episode. And then there are only two more recap episodes left for this chapter, though at least one of them is going to have to be quite a long episode. It is now the morning after the date, and Lois calls up Weir and and wakes him up. Uh, this has now become something of a running gag, I guess. I don't know. Wolf thought this was funny. It seems <laughs> seems terrible to me. But uh, anyway, Lois wants him to come with her looking for this cemetery. But Weir knows now that Lois is lying to him because he saw a pick and a shovel behind her refrigerator when he was over there the night before. And she invites him back over now, this time for breakfast, where she explains everything. The deal is that she's read something really interesting, something really exciting in Kate Boyne's diary. There's an account of a guerrilla fighter from the Civil War, uh, a man named William Clark Quantrill, who led a company that fought for the Confederacy. According to Kate Boyne, he and his men were in this area in 1863, and they buried $40,000 in gold around here. And that is what Lois is really looking for, not cemetery headstones. And uh, this is where we're going to end today. This is a, a real uh, real cliffhanger, maybe even a real game changer here. Yeah, what a cliffhanger indeed. Uh, before we sign off today, let's talk a little bit about William Clark Quantrill. Uh, and, and then there's another detail I want to point out here. But about Quantrill, Lois says that he was born near Cashinsville. She says near here. And she sort of expands on that a little. I guess she says he's a Midwesterner. And that's true. Quantrill was born in Ohio. He lived in Illinois for two years. He taught school in Indiana for a little bit. And then he moved to Kansas and basically became a bandit, uh, leading a group of bandits and to, like tracking down escaped slaves before he led an attack on Lawrence, Kansas, which was an anti-slavery hub in the Midwest, um, and eventually becoming a Confederate soldier. So Quantrill was a real rascal. And he had a pretty miserable life, uh, at least upbringing. And then he seems to have turned all of that into banditry and uh, hatred of slaves or at least love of slave owners. And what little I've read about him makes me want to read a biography on him. He he seems to embody a kind of like a particular kind of American outlaw spirit, even if he was like an explicitly wicked man. I mean, I'm not 
saying Quantrill was was good on any level. Um, but it's strange that he comes up here because he was essentially evil, and his gold that he would have gotten here was either stolen, um, you know, from the Union Army, or ill-gotten from chasing down escaped slaves and making money, or looted from cities he raided. He, you know, this is not gold you want to get your hands on. This is basically how you get a ghost or, you know, a curse of a black pearl or something along those lines. Yeah. I mean, this certainly has all the markings of a, a cursed object, uh, you know, the haunted treasure story to it for sure. And yeah, I mean, Brandon, I think it's okay to be expressing some interest in this character. I mean, certainly even his presence here is super exciting and super compelling. And uh, American culture is fascinated with outlaw villains. I mean, we have an entire genre of uh, literature that exists both on page and on screen that romanticizes these figures, by which I mean the Western, right? I mean, and this is one of the quintessential components of American culture. And, and Quantrill, really, his story here is a kind of precursor to exactly those types of characters from the Wild West of the the late 19th and early 20th century, and really the, the way that the, the West operates in the aftermath of the Civil War. And of course, historically, and then also to some lesser extent, literarily, so many of those figures were essentially people exactly like Quantrill, people who had tried to make a go of things in the Civil War, uh, largely for the Confederacy, and then moved to the West, which was generally a kind of lawless land, and set up shop there and were these sorts of villains. But uh, they are they are characters who've been highly romanticized by our culture. Yeah, I, I should also note here that uh, Jesse James was part of uh, William Clark Quantrill's group, the the of uh, the bandits, before kind of going out on his own and becoming a famous uh, famous outlaw and and bandit and wicked man in his own right. Uh, yeah, criminality in the American West is its own fascinating topic to really get into. There, there are probably two more things I want to highlight here. One is we we've kind of had a difficult time nailing down exactly where Cashinsville is in the Midwest. And just based on this passage here, uh, it seems to be anywhere. Wolf seems to really want to be pointing out that Cashinsville, somewhere between St. Louis and Chicago, um, as the two main cities, Lois saying Quantrill was born near here, puts him in Ohio, but also Quantrill's most known for being, you know, in Kansas. He's only in Illinois for two years. So this reference here seems to really nail down the idea that that Wolf is envisioning uh, the Midwest as a region. And so this is kind of a, a Cashinsville is sort of an any place in that region. I don't know if you had a different sense of that. No, I think that's exactly right. One thing we, we should say is that uh, we're going to need to reassess some things that we have said about Wolf where Cashinsville is and the direction of the river and so on, things that we talked about quite a long time ago. We will be addressing those also in the, the wrap-up episodes for Chapter 4. And, and in fact, this story, this incident will be part of the information that we need to, uh, to take stock of there when we're reassessing that. The, the last thing I want to point out here is really just a, an odd detail that caught my eye. We're on this morning call with Lois said, as you pointed out, Glenn, that there is a pick and a shovel that he saw behind her refrigerator the night before. And and we kind of read that. And I think it's natural to read that um, just because of the way the time is flowing here as being the night of the date that we've already read about. But in the description of that date, you know, where Weir goes home and thinks about sex a lot, 
Weir is careful to point out that there is only a Matic and a brand new garden spade, an unused garden spade behind the refrigerator. Also in this call, Lois tells us that she's going out again, which, you know, there would have been evidence that she'd been out if the garden spade had dirt on it. But again, Weir points out that it's brand new. So I think that even though Weir is writing this as though it's the next morning after this date uh, where, you know, Lois undresses a little and passes out, it must be the case that some time has passed between that date and this morning because Lois has bought bigger tools after digging around a little with her garden tools. And it also means that Lois and we are fool around a lot. And maybe that Lois gets drunk a lot and apologizes about for her behavior the next morning. Maybe. Yeah, I don't think I'm convinced of that reading. I, I, I think I would see Maddock as more of a synonym for pick and that I think actually what's happening here is that Weir, who has grown up in a rural area, uh, his family wealth in part, in, derives in part at least from owning farms. He's certainly been on a lot of farms, knows the difference between different types of tools, but that Lois does not. And so when Weir is just thinking to himself, he he recognizes these as small versions of, of standard types of tools and that they themselves have specific technical names. And he uses those internally for himself. But when he's speaking to Lois, who's a city person and doesn't know what she's doing uh, with digging around in dirt, he just calls them by a sort of more generic name. I, I think that's more likely what's going on here than that time has passed and that Lois has upgraded her tools. Well, we'll have to end this episode on a note of discord then. Yeah, this is certainly the biggest <laughs> disagreement we've ever had. <laughs> yeah. So that, I guess on that note, we will end the episode once again. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. If you would like to support the network and check out all the bonus series that we've been doing on books like At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft, Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing. Also, we've been doing a bonus series on the Star Trek The Next Generation films. And uh, we say bonus because all of that is on top of the regular monthly episodes that we put out exclusively on Patreon. If you would like to support us and gain access to all of that, we hope that you'll join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media. Next time, we're going to be reading pages 253 to 262 in the Orb 2012 edition. And this has us reading up through the line, writing in my lap, for those of you who are reading along in other editions. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.